This is The Guardian. Today, how the son of a dictator in the Philippines used social media to erase his family's brutal history and win a presidential race. Before we start, a heads up. This episode contains descriptions of violence. You've probably heard the phrase people power. It was coined in the Philippines in 1986 when an entire society rose up to force the country's dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, from the presidential palace. Marcos had ruled for two brutal decades. He introduced martial law, shut down media, tortured opponents, and disappeared thousands of people. At the end of his rule, as people closed in on the palace, Marcos and his wife could be seen throwing gold bars into the helicopter they were using to escape. Just a fraction of the estimated billions of dollars they stole during their time in power. As they were airlifted, they were cramming on board as much wealth as they could possibly carry. Hundreds of pieces of jewellery, gold bricks, freshly printed banknotes, an ivory statue of the infant Jesus. And the total value was 15 million US dollars. I felt euphoric, just like all the Filipinos that were there. I never realised that I could see that uh, in my lifetime. It was uh, a dream. It was a dream come true. Bonnie Ilagan had been part of the People Power Revolution, also called the EDSA Revolution, that had removed Marcos from power. For activists like Bonnie, this past week has been a nightmare because the Marcoses never went away. The family spent the past three decades plotting, looking for a way back. And now, after 36 years, they've done it. The presumptive winner of the presidential election in the Philippines mobbed by supporters. Preliminary and unofficial results show Ferdinand Marcos Jr. winning by a landslide. Marcos's son and namesake, known as Bongbong Marcos, is on course for a landslide win in presidential election held last weekend. That his family siphoned away billions of dollars from the country is a fact proven by courts in the Philippines and overseas. So. Why do so many people in the Philippines now believe those facts to be untrue? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, rewriting history, one post at a time. How the Marcos family found their way back into power. My name is Bonifacio Ilagan, but you can call me Bonnie. I have a little aviary nearby. What kinds of birds do you have? I have African lovebirds, 20 pairs. That's quite a lot of birds. <laughs> Bonnie, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and in which part of the Philippines. I, I grew up in a province uh, south of Manila. It is called Laguna. 
And what was it like to grow up in the Philippines under the Marcos regime? I grew up knowing Marcos as uh, president. My father, in fact, became a campaign manager of his. And I somehow got to admire him because I I thought he was charismatic. He spoke very well. But that soon turned when I realized what was really happening in my country. The politicians were saying a lot of good things about what they were doing, but it didn't jive with the reality. I witnessed poverty around. There was corruption. The basic needs of the people were not being met. And in 1969, there was a student movement that was starting to develop in the state university. And I somehow got involved before I knew it. I was deep into it. We went out to the streets. We connected with the people in the urban poor areas. We connected with the workers in the factories. And Bonnie, you and members of your family became prominent activists against the Marcos regime. How did the government respond The government responded uh, in the way that we did not expect. When I joined um, one of the protest actions, I was hit by a a riot police with his truncheon. That really opened my eyes about what the leaders of the student movement were talking about, you know, state uh, brutality and all that. And then how did your career as an activist under the Marcos regime, grow from there? What happened next? The movement uh, spread quickly. And before I knew it, even my sister in the province had become an activist like me. And my my parents uh, didn't share our commitment. They feared for us. What did they fear, your family? They feared that we were treading on dangerous grounds. Before they knew it, I was already deep into the organization. I had become some kind of a leader. My sister kept her involvement a secret. When Marcos suspended the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus in 1971, I told my parents that uh, there was no way for me to keep above ground and that I had to go underground. Otherwise, I would be merely a sitting duck. I signed... Proclamation number 1081, placing the entire Philippines under martial law. This uh, proclamation was uh, to be implemented upon my clearance. Bonnie, can you explain, for people who have never lived under something like martial law, what is that like? I mean, what is daily life like under that kind of system? When Marcos uh, declared martial law in September 1972, he did everything that was unthinkable. He closed down the legislature. He closed down all media outlets, print, broadcast, radio, television, and only allowed a few who were owned by his cronies. Discussion and debates is confined to the holding of public rallies or debates in a specific place or public plaza and does not, repeat, and does not include the marching or holding demonstrations along the streets of the city. And of course, he started rounding up critics, political oppositionists, church people, media people, everybody who had displeased Marcos and his family. The Marcos government has arrested 122 people and released four. 
These people are considered to be subversives, but in fact, many of them are not communists at all, but simply critics of the Marcos government. Yes, there was silence, there was calm, there was what you might call peace, but everything wa was happening because the people feared the military. In martial law, the commanding officer, the commander-in-chief, is authorized to adopt whatever measures, I repeat, and the uh, key there is all the measures necessary to prevent the success of the enemy. Bonnie, how long were you able to stay off the radar of the regime? A little under two years. It was not even the second year of martial law, April 1974. The military raided the house I was staying in together with Jose Lacaba, who was then one of the most popular journalists and poets um, together with an English professor in the State University. In, in the house where they cornered us, they gave us a taste of uh, what we were to experience more in the days to come. I was uh, punched, I was slapped, kicked, uh, shoved to the ground. Bonnie, after they arrested you, where did they take you? They took me and my companions to the general headquarters of the Philippine Constabulary. The camp is called Camp Krame. It was in that camp where torture really happened. They wanted me to tell them uh, the whereabouts of our other comrades. They wanted me to decode the documents that they exist from us. Of course, I refused. That must have taken like extraordinary bravery. Did you think you would ever get out of that prison? I, I was entertaining the, the thought that I'd never be alive again. I don't know if I was brave, but you know, when I was being tortured, I was crying. <laughs> I was pleading for mercy. In fact, at one point, I was cr calling out God, and they laughed. And they said, why are you calling God? Are you not a communist? Communists do not believe in God. Uh, I will never forget that exchange of, of lines between me and my torturers. It sounds just horrendous. Like, how did you survive? I, I held on to the belief that I was not doing anything wrong. Yes, I was fighting government, but government was evil. Government was bad. I, I really cannot <laughs> uh, explain in full how I was able to uh, withstand the torture. I just, you know, let go. Bonnie, you were eventually released two years later, but that wasn't the end of your family's ordeals with the government. What happened next? I went home, back to the province. I received a letter from my sister, who was still in the underground. She wanted me to meet up with her. So we met in our province. We shared stories. Uh, she was happy that I was finally released. After a few months, I again received a letter from her 
and she was asking for help. A couple of her associates in the underground, they went missing. And so they knew that the military could be after their group. She asked me for a safe house where they could transfer. And I promised that we arranged for another meeting. During that meeting, she did not appear. When she first didn't appear at that meeting, what did you think? Well, I knew that something really bad could have happened to her. And I was right. After a couple of days, the underground network got in touch with my parents and told them that my sister had become one of the missing. I think it was after a year when the military department came out with a a media release. And the release told that my sister had been killed in an encounter. But I knew that it was a lie because my sister was never a combatant. My sister was not only the one missing in that incident. There were 10 of them. And that's why I coined the name Southern Tagalog 10 for them. Of the 10, the two were found in a ravine in another city, their bodies badly mutilated. Another body was exhumed in a common grave in Quezon province. But my sister and the rest uh, were never found. God, I'm so sorry. Bonnie, your sister, Rizalina, tell me about her. What kind of woman was she? She, she was the quiet type. I never expected that she would decide to join the underground. She was so timid, but she was a deep thinker. And I think that really uh, got into her, the situation of our country. There was this incident uh, when I was finally allowed to be visited by my mother. My mother whispered to me that my sister was with her, but that she had to stay in some distance. I longed to see her, so we stepped out, and I saw my sister, and she raced. Sorry. No, Bonnie, don't apologize. I know this is incredibly difficult. She raised a clenched fist. Perhaps she was, she was telling me to, you know, be steadfast. Anyway, yeah. Bonnie, you were steadfast. Your movement was steadfast. And nearly a decade after, it actually, it succeeded. Tell me about how the opposition to Marcos grew and became so powerful that it actually toppled his regime. Well, in spite of the rhetorics of uh, the Marcos regime, they could not uh, whitewash reality. People were really impoverished. People were really hungry. So no matter how they tell the media that everything was uh, good, 
the economy was getting better buildings were being constructed uh, no such development uh, had trickled down to the people and so it didn't become difficult for us in the underground to explain to the people and uh, convince them that the only way to you know be free of all that was happening to them was to join the resistance movement in no time at all even the military had to crack a segment of the military realized that they were serving not the people but an elite that only looked after themselves when the phenomenon that was eventually called people power started and grew i was in the city and became part of that throng that stopped the tanks that applauded when military helicopters landed in Camp Crame and in Fort Bonifacio to join the uh, the movement they landed in these places where you had been held and tortured <laughs> right right and in that moment, what did you hope the Philippines could become? I hoped at that moment that everything would really change for the better. But uh, it did not happen that way. The son taking over some 60 years after the father's regime began. A dramatic turn considering Marcos Sr. was ousted by a revolution in 1986, his dictatorship imploding over charges of brutality and corruption. Rebecca Ratcliffe, you're The Guardian's Southeast Asia correspondent, and you've been covering the election in the Philippines. The final results of the poll may not be known for weeks, but we have a pretty good sense of, of who won, which is Ferdinand Marcos Jr. What is the scale of his victory right now? Um, it's a huge victory. Like, there's no question about it. He's got a very large mandate if this initial vote count is declared official. And interestingly, his vice president is Sarah Duterte, the daughter of the outgoing president, Rodrigo Duterte. So this is, on some level, an alliance between these two really powerful dynasties. But it's still unbelievable. How is it possible that the family has become popular again, that people actually want them back in power? I think a big part of it is um, the disinformation that has flooded social media, not just in the run-up to election, but um, for years um, prior to this vote. They've spread really widely on YouTube, on Facebook, on TikTok. There was a Facebook official who said she agreed with the description of the Philippines as being patient zero in this disinformation pandemic. It shows how even recent history can be distorted on, on such a wide scale. Read and listen carefully. Do not skip or fast forward this video, because the information you are about to know today is mind-boggling, and if you are a real patriotic Filipino, information revealed in this video will shake you to the core, and will inspire you to love your country more than anything else, and will enlighten you to the real truth about the great love of President Ferdinand E. Marcos has had for this nation. 
Marcos Jr. denies that there is any kind of coordinated network um, spreading disinformation online. But Twitter has taken down hundreds of accounts and there are researchers who have analysed what's happening online and seen a really industrialised, organised network that is spreading false information that flatters Marcos and his family and undermines his opponents, mainly uh, Lenny Robredo. She is the current vice president and a former human rights lawyer, and she was the kind of main threat to his candidacy. And so what kinds of messages is this disinformation network spreading? Primarily, they're focused on revising history and portraying the Marcos era as a kind of golden period in history when there was order, when life was just a lot better, sweeping aside the human rights abuses, either downplaying or denying them. And some of the claims are the army was the most powerful in Asia during Marcos's rule. He was like the most decorated hero from World War II. The family owns huge amounts of gold, and if they're elected, this gold will be kind of given back to the country. On April 9th, 1973, Marcos said, My earthly goods have been placed in the custody and for the disposition of the Marcos Foundation dedicated to the welfare of the Filipino people. And what academics say is that this period of history isn't really taught very well in schools, um, and so there's a gap that the family have been able to, or their supporters have been able to exploit. One big false narrative was that martial law was the golden era in Philippine history, that the dictator was able to build the cultural center, the kidney center, the lung center, you know, many, many structures that still exist today. He was able to build bridges, thousands of kilometers of roads. And when, when people see the structures, they would tend to believe, little knowing that for every contract that the government got into to be able to build structure after structure, Marcos had a big commission. Marcos pocketed a big percentage of the money that was borrowed from IMF World Bank, and that constituted their ill-gotten wealth. And when we tell people, look, there's another side to the story of Marcos being the great builder, that is when beliefs uh, clash and they seem not to accept reality even when faced with facts. Bonnie, you, more than many other people, know the reality of martial law, that it wasn't a time of building. It was a time of repression and torture and disappearances and death. How does it feel for you to hear this young generation talk about this time in a completely different way? I feel, I feel sad and bitter. The first time that I heard young people talking about their positive appreciation of martial law, I was hurt. I took it personally. But eventually I realized that they were not to blame because they were fed the wrong lessons, the wrong information. What were people taught instead about the Marcos era? We examined books that were being used in 
the grade school and in high school. And we saw that uh, there were only four or five pages devoted to uh, the 70s, martial law. And those uh, couple of pages did not picture accurately what uh, had happened. One book said that it was so chaotic during the 70s. There was a breakdown of peace and order. There was a secessionist movement in the South, and there was the communist insurgency in Luzon. And so President Marcos had, do you know, declared martial law to restore peace and order. With that kind of description, what real lesson could be learned? Rebecca, this kind of misinformation is it actually Marcos Jr. and his campaign that, that are spreading it, or is it coming from other sources? We have explained it. I think we've been explaining it for 40 years <laughs> already. Well, we he hasn't apologised or really acknowledged the atrocities that happened under his father's rule. And these were people who wanted to bring down the government, and the government had to defend itself. Other people point out that this has been enabled by President Rodrigo Duterte. It was on his recommendation that Marcos Sr. was given a hero's burial in 2016. And so that's contributed to this overall narrative of glorifying martial law. Yeah, there's one myth that I find particularly interesting, and you touched on it. It's this idea that the Marcos family have all this wealth that they're going to pump back into the country for some reason. And it's mentioned a lot in social media videos. Aren't Filipino voters worried that Marcos Jr. will just do what his father did, just steal money all over again? Well, actually, when I asked voters about this, some people will say that they um, they don't worry about corruption because the Marcos family are already rich, so they won't need to steal money. Myths like the myth about the gold, about the Marcos family having huge stashes of gold. It's based on this um, belief or false story that Marcos acted as a lawyer for a royal family and won their case. And so they paid him with huge amounts of gold. And I suppose the underlying message in all of that is that they are wealthy and powerful, but he he earned that wealth legitimately due to his brilliance as a lawyer. As opposed to the reality, which is that the family is incredibly wealthy because they stole the money, right? Yes, they, um, according to some estimates, they plundered as much as 10 billion US dollars from the state. That's incredible. Coming up, what it's like for a survivor of Marcos Senior's regime to see Marcos Jr. come to power. Rebecca, we've talked a lot about, about misinformation and these false ideas that may have led people to vote for another Marcos, but I wonder if that explains the whole story. Like, is there any sense that some people might absolutely know what they're getting into by, by putting this family back in power, but they just feel like the democracy of the past 35 years didn't deliver for them, that it didn't give them the things that it promised? Some academics feel that 
maybe the support for Marcos does also reflect failures of previous administrations, that people are suspicious of candidates who talk about reform because previous promises haven't had a material or a significant impact on their lives in terms of, you know, distribution of wealth and in the way that the country is still dominated by a few powerful families. And so maybe there is also just a feeling that it doesn't matter, that people don't expect their lives will change whoever is voted in. The promises of people power were never realized. First, I, I don't think what happened in 1986 was a revolution in the real sense of the word. We returned to the old kind of democracy prior to martial law. Everything was controlled by a few. Even elections were managed by people who had money. So we just reverted back to the old democracy prior to martial law. The other thing is... Those who joined the bandwagon got off the bandwagon and started reclaiming whatever they had lost. So we were somehow left uh, on our own to pursue what should be pursued post-martial law. And that meant ensuring that the lessons of history were taught to the generations of Filipinos, but no such thing uh, happened. And before we knew it, we activists of the 70s were being treated in the same manner that we were treated by Marcos, rebels, enemies of the state. It was really sad. Uh... It sounds like the 1986 revolution, the EDSA revolution, in some ways was quite shallow, that it threw out Marcos, but the system that enabled him a lot of that stayed in place. Yes, you can say that again. It was shallow. It did not cause the radical change that society needed to experience. So the old politicians were able to come back, to return. Those who were displaced by the Marcoses simply reclaimed their lost positions in the economy and in, in government. I do not mean to belittle what EDSA was able to achieve. EDSA was able to throw out a dictator, something that we could not have done by ourselves, you know, by the activists of the 70s. It happened because people uh, came together. But what happened after was an entirely different thing. And Bonnie, for you, what has it been like to watch the election campaign and now the victory of Marcos's son, Marcos Jr.? It's grotesque. I cannot seem to fathom why we've come to this after all those years of struggle. We are up against Amarcos, the son of the dictator, whose father was uh, the embodiment of all that was evil in our society. The son of the dictator visited the hero's cemetery and offered flowers on the tomb of his father. He was in tears. And I thought to myself, uh, it was such a tender moment, how I wish I could visit the tomb of my sister too. But there is no tomb to, to visit. 
we're at the beginning now of what might be a new Marcos era. Are you worried about what that might mean for democracy in the Philippines? I mean, for your ability to give interviews like the one that you're giving now. Uh, I feel, yeah, it's such a concern. During the term of Duterte, when he started running after critics and suspected enemies of the state, of course, that included me, I feared for my life. I stayed home. I waited for a military team to come visiting, knocking at my door and telling me that I was under arrest. And that could happen during the time of uh, Marcos Jr. You fear that again? Yes. Not because Marcos Jr. would declare martial law in the same manner that his father did. I think that a style is already passé. He's not ever going to do that. But, you know, he need not do that because there is already a law in the Philippines called anti-terror law that allows the president to exercise powers, uh, emergency powers, martial law powers, by simply invoking that law. And that law allows for the president to form an executive council all appointed by him, and that council is empowered to arrest people on mere suspicion without any court intervention. And those that they arrested could be detained longer than what the Bill of Rights provides for. But definitely, Marcos Jr. is going to make use of his powers to cleanse society of dissidents. Well, Bonnie, we sincerely hope that you stay safe and we're definitely going to keep in touch with you. Thank you very, very much for speaking with us. Thank you for the opportunity. That was Bonnie Ilagan, a playwright and activist who lives in Manila. Thank you so much to him, as well as to Rebecca Ratcliffe, the Guardian Southeast Asia correspondent. You can read her coverage of the Philippines election and its aftermath at theguardian.com. That is it for today. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams and Klitsia Sala. Sound design by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.